from Infinite Guest, this is Top Score, a conversation with composers who write music for video games. I'm Emily Reese. I found if I'm more terrified than I am comfortable when I'm working on something, then I'm usually in a pretty good place once I get finished. <laughs> and I was definitely terrified most of the time for this. That's Jason Graves talking about his music for the new game, The Order 1886. He was scared because he took some risks. And if you heard him on Top Score, he was just on a couple weeks ago talking about his music for Evolve. This is completely different from that music. And he even surprised me with his choice of instrumentation and exposed, honestly, some of my own listening weaknesses. takes place, as the title suggests, in 1886. So you've got this neo-Victorian London, which is one of my favorite cities. And first of all, it looks absolutely incredible. The the visuals, the lighting, the design, everything's just amazing. I mean, it's I just sit and watch it without any sound at all. But then there's a story, which really goes back to Arthurian times and the knights, but In 1886, you have this group of people known as the Order. Q credits. So they're called the Order, and they're essentially knights of the round table from long ago who have longer lives than normal, and they're kind of medieval Batman in a way. So they're taking on the role of being above the law and protecting people from things that they might not even know exist. And in this case, we have what are called half-breeds, which are various human morphs of other kinds of creatures. So they can be human, but they can also turn into other things. And I don't want to give too many spoilers, but that's that's overall the general idea. There's also a, re- a rebellion going on, so they have to deal with that. They work with the police. And you are playing as Galahad, not necessarily the leader of the Order, but kind of the unspoken hero of the Order. A lot of knights look up to him, and he has other knights that he looks up to. So it's a, it's a team effort, but you play as Galahad. So... Did you, we're going to talk about your music now, did you give a starring role to a viola? <laughs> you know, I dated a violist in college, and I kind of fell in love with the instrument. And we've had this conversation before. I tend to gravitate towards more, I wouldn't say unusual sounds, but I, I guess I gravitate away towards the usual expected kinds of sounds. And whenever I write for strings, especially if it's a smaller ensemble, I always try to feature the viola. I think I did that in the string quartet stuff for Dead Space 2. I mean, I'll write the viola in a higher register than everybody else and make them the violins, who are usually the, the snooty melody players. The viola's stuck doing all the counter melody, middle of the road stuff. I put the viola up high and I drop the violins down low. And it's just got such a wonderful timbre. It's really dark and woody. And this was one of those examples where, again, what I love doing lined up with what would be appropriate for the game.
first thing I did when we were talking about music was I thought, could we do it without any violins whatsoever? Which means that then the violas are automatically in the foreground. Yes. So did you, is that what you did for the whole score, though? There's violins in the score, right? But there, There's not a single violin in the score. Are you serious? Yeah, it's, it's um, 20, no, 18, 18 violas. STFU. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, yeah. See, and this is, you know, I've always struggled with personally hearing the difference. You know, I, it's always been hard for me because I'm not a string player, you know. So so I'd say 90% of the time for my whole life, every time I hear a viola, I don't really even think about the fact that I'm hearing viola. So, wow. No I love it. Okay, so Bach did this. This is not, you know, this is not exclusive to you. Bach did this uh, with one of his Brandenburg Concerti, and it's one of my favorites, um, number six. You know, there have been other scores like this as well. I believe um, The Last of Us, the score for The Last of Us was like that. Now, what this does, I'm sorry, I'm just nerding out so hardcore on this, but this is great because it really warms up the orchestra, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, not to like diss the violins. I mean, we love you violins, but let's just put a finger on it and say, taking out that highest register mellows everything out. You get a darker sound. It's... um. It almost sounds like you've got a blanket over the speakers or something. Yeah. The word weight kept coming up with the developer. They said they wanted the score to have a real weight to it. And I was thinking, I mean, I, you can use a whole orchestra, a full orchestra, and you could write a score that has a sense of weight to it. But in a way, I really like cheating, which is <laughs> how many instruments can I take away that do not contribute to the sense of weight? And how many can I have? What's my bare bones minimum number of instruments I need to have that's, that are doing nothing but contributing to the weight? And not only did we have double the amount of normal violas, we also had double the amount of normal cellos. So we had 12 cellos, 18 violas, and basically that was how I wrote the strings. It was two sections of violas, two sections of cellos, and then the basses. But then on top of all that, they were playing muted most of the time, which there's a little, almost like a little piece of rubber they put on their instrument, which makes it sound even more, well, it sounds darker. And on top of that, they normally were only playing their two bottom strings. So normally when they would go, if you're a violin or a string player, past fifth position, meaning kind of where they reach their pinkies out really far, they go up to the next string because it makes it easier to play. We had them play on the bottom string. So you get this real... Uh, tension and kind of stretching sound. They're playing these high notes, but they're they're really strained in in a good way because that's that's what we wanted for the score. little bit more about that because you know for for non-musicians particularly non-string players 
this is a probably foreign concept to them. So instead of using all four strings, they are playing notes on the bottom two strings that they otherwise could be playing on those higher strings. But by playing them on the bottom, bottom strings, it gives a warmer, uh, heavier sound, right? It's it's thicker. Yeah, it's got this this it's you know it's almost you you sense it more than than it's an obvious like I don't think you listened to a cue and said oh my gosh I can tell the violas are playing past fifth position on their low C string I I, I can't even hear that it's more something that you feel it's like a an emotion and when they're playing these themes and they start getting really high it it has a uh, I'm 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 like you know I wish you had a visual I'm kind of clenching my fists and it's this beautiful tension that you just don't get first of all with with samples or or synthesizers and the players really got into it because anything that's slightly different it keeps them awake it keeps them intrigued it keeps all of us you know more attentive wow so there i mean and there are subtleties that i heard that i wanted to point out we're just uncovering a whole nother layer of subtleties I didn't know about. And I love that about this music. <laughs> Let's talk specifically about this opening track, the night's theme. Because you start with just a cello, right? Right. Then you start adding elements. Can you take me through the first couple of minutes before the full orchestra comes in? Again, I think this is almost a... a a perfect example, the Knight's theme and Galahad's theme, the first and last tracks on the album, are kind of the, the boiled-down, bare-bones version of what I hoped to be able to do with the score. Both of them start with solo cello. Now, I know I've said that I love viola. I, I also love cello. And in the upper register, too, it just has such a longing, beautiful, mournful, kind of lonely sound. So having those two together, the cello solo and the viola solo, to me, is the score kind of wrapped up in a nice, neat little package. One of the things that the developer wanted and that Sony wanted and, by extension, that I wanted was to have something that could play that wasn't necessarily different. It's not some crazy sound effect or uh, a weird harmonic convention, nothing that takes 60 seconds to explore. We wanted simple, immediate, and recognizable, which, of course, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But again, how many instruments can I take away and what's my bare minimum? So I thought, okay, two solo strings, solo cello, solo viola. You've got melody in the viola, counter melody in the cello, and that's about as simple as, as we could get. And the strings, being that we're in 1886, were just a natural choice to kind of feature strings. So I love the idea, kind of like Dead Space 2, of having these diverse sets of instruments, two solo strings versus, you know, a 70-plus piece ensemble. And then you get the contrast. Um, now, I haven't, of course, talked about the piece at all, but we start with solo cello. The solo viola comes in and plays the theme, and very slowly, over about 30 seconds, another viola sneaks in, and then a third viola, and then we get the, the rest of the orchestra. 
but in a way, it's it's sort of a snapshot of the score because that's how the score is built. We start with a string quartet, we go to a twenty-something piece ensemble, and then for the last half of the game, we have the full seventy-plus musicians. So there's this four-note motive that it in my am I right? Yes. Yep, the four-note motive for the knight's theme. How did you manipulate that over time? Probably not as much as as maybe I should have. <laughs> but but really the idea was to have something very simple and immediately recognizable that was short, sweet, and to the point. Just four notes and the rhythm um, is throughout the entire score, for, for better or for worse. Even when the violas are playing the melody, a lot of times the cellos are doing a contra melody and they've got the same rhythm with with different notes. It's it's literally throughout the entire score. Probably my most obvious, you know, melodic snippet that is just kind of everywhere. And every now and then I'd change the last note or change the interval, but most of the time it was distinctly the same on, on purpose. So where are all the trumpets? <laughs> They were fired, <laughs> along with the French horns yep. and, and all the trombones and tubas. And, and a heck of a lot of the percussion section got the axe, too. They did. They did. It was, it was a matter of just clearing the stage and letting the really low character of the orchestra come through. The first thing I did was I wanted no French horns because that was the, let's face it, in modern Hollywood scoring, which can be extended to video games, the heroic French horns and the kind of staccato violins are the two most recognizable symptoms of today's music. So I thought, well, let's get rid of those. And you know, this is the this is one side of my brain, the theoretical side, saying, "Oh, we won't use this, we won't use this, we won't use that." But then the creative side got down to, "Okay, I've got to write all this combat music. I've got violas and cellos, and 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 that's it. <laughs> there's no, there's there's nothing else because the whole score is essentially three part writing. There's no there's kind of a melody and a counter melody and a bass, and there's nothing." really beyond that. So in a way, it was a very difficult form of uh, almost tying my hands behind my back, creatively speaking, and almost like writing for a string quartet. There's nowhere to hide. And if you do anything a little repetitive, it starts sounding really, well, repetitive, and you can't just change textures because you kind of only have one. You did manage to use the strings, though, really well percussively. And, and I mean, you, there are several tracks on, on the album, and I imagine these are combat scenes of some sort or, or maybe combat-y cinematics uh, that, that are kind of like moto perpetuo, you know, those perpetual motion aspects of string playing that you use really well.
I appreciate that. Thank you. That's, well, drummer. So <laughs> I feel like we've had this conversation many times before as well. But being a drummer and a percussionist, I've always felt an inherent need to run as far away as possible from the tried and true drum, you know, four-bar phrases and using drums to drive the motion of the music forward. I would much prefer to have the drums just doing some little accents here and there, you know, like a cymbal roll at the end of a phrase, for example. I don't think I've done that in in years just because it, for me as a drummer, I'm just like, ah, I've done that before. But having the strings, especially because they can play although they were getting tired on some of these cues, but they can can just kind of hack away and I can trade back and forth and get that energy out of the strings. And it's a lot more interesting because it's also melodic and harmonic Mm -hmm. as as well as rhythmic. Yeah, I I thought that was really effective. And there are several tracks, too, where where you use it in in just really creative and, and different ways. Commandeered... going to butcher this word Agamemnon rising did I say that word Agamemnon yes Agamemnon rising yeah yeah just really really nice string work in there as you're saying to kind of lead the motion for lack of for lack of anything else really because I didn't I didn't have anything else to use I'd basically painted myself into a musical corner (laughs) so what other kinds of low sounds did you um, take advantage of in the orchestra. We talked about, you know, all the low strings, cutting out the violins. I mean, were there contrabassoons, low, low instruments like that? Oh, yes. The woodwinds were, were my first. You know, there's not a lot of woodwind writing in modern music now, film, TV, or games. I think it's seen as a little cliche and kind of old school now. And I hadn't had a chance to do much with woodwinds lately, but I knew from the beginning, if you're talking about dark, heavy, moody, I thought, oh, low woodwinds. I've always loved Bernard Herrmann, all the way he would use the the low, it's more of a textural thing. You know, woodwinds are, are texturally supportive. They're not often brought to the forefront. So with that in mind, I didn't just want to use the low woodwinds that would normally be in an orchestra, which would be, you know, maybe two bassoons, maybe a contrabassoon, a bass clarinet, and then maybe a contrabass clarinet. But the contrabassoons and the contrabass clarinets were the ones that I was really interested in. So what we did is we had 12 woodwinds, three three bassoons, three contrabass bassoons, three bass clarinets, and three contrabass clarinets. And that is a sound that I have never heard before. (laughs) I wish I could just get that in the clear just to give people an idea of what that sounds like, because that is that that's that's got to be a remarkable sound. It's just a wonderfully, especially between now the bassoons for all the non woodwind people, the bassoon has a reed. It's it's a double reed. So it's the equivalent of like a like two reeds kind of stuck together with a hole in the middle of it. So it has this very kind of whole, like uh, back of the throat sort of uh, sound. The clarinet is just a single reed, so it doesn't have the double reed, and it's more of a, 
ah, like an open kind of a sound. Having them play together, a lot of times they just played the same notes, but it was the difference in the timbre of the instrument, just the way it was built, that made such a great sound. Track two, The Enduring Pride, at, uh, on the first half of the track, that's basically the lichen theme. And you can hear, when you hear this like low kind of growling, those are the 12 low woodwinds. Love it. Love it. You also worked with a men's choir and and you you got to write kind of some a cappella stuff for them as as well. There's a track called The Knighthood, where like the first half of that track is just the choir. I can't imagine that you've done too much choir writing in in your uh life. No. Especially being able to use Live choir. I've done some stuff, you know, Might and Magic, and um, I think maybe some Command and Conquer or, or something. We had choir, and we used MIDI choir, which sounded fine. But the live choir, especially, and you know where this is going, the, the register of the men's voices that we started with uh, baritones, which are kind of just above basses in, in the choir. So if you have your standard choir with men and women, the basses are the low 25% of the choir. And then we added contrabasses on top of that. So, you know, these guys, this one guy was like five foot five and kind of walked in and was checking his phone and, you know, coming in for the choir session. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm Jason. And he looks up and he's like, pleased to meet you. My name's Dan. I mean, his voice was so low and it had this just like super huge chest cavity resonance. So these guys could could sing as low as the low basses in the orchestra could play. They could sing low Cs, which in in the knighthood, just before the viola solo comes in, they they I wrote that whole piece in a certain key to hit that chord, which is like the lowest note that uh they, they claimed that they could sing even lower, but I wanted it to be... I mean, you hear it, it sounds perfect. It just sounds really, really low. You know, when you see it with the visuals, now there is a female in the order, but most of them are guys. And you hear this music, especially the knighthood is from a cinematic. So when it plays out, it just, oh, it's like the knights are singing. I mean, it really does imbue the sense of historical uh, just wonderment almost to me. And writing for them was was wonderful. I didn't even have any anything in the computer that could approximate how low they could sing. As a matter of fact, a lot of the stuff, 
like from the order, the Knights theme, we dropped the entire choir an octave when we got there. Wow. Because that's how low they could sing. Which, again, if you're not musically inclined, it might not mean a lot. But they sang a whole lot lower than I originally even thought that they would be able to sing. And it sounded amazing. I bet they loved it, too. I bet they just had a blast singing that low. I think that they, they enjoyed being able to just kind of bottom out. You know, that's almost like like a guitar player getting to do a solo and kind of show off what they don't normally get to do. These guys were the reading that they could do for the knighthood, for example. I have an iPhone movie I took. They read it, sight read it at all of these recording sessions. The musicians show up and they've never seen the music before. So they're sight reading these pieces. And on top of that, the first, I don't know, minute and a half or two minutes are completely a cappella. So the choir has no background track to listen to. They just got a bum, 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 like a piano note. And then they sang and it it goes through key changes and there's suspensions and passing tones and fairly complicated things to just look at the music and sing. And the first take was amazing. I was just blown away. And we were at Abbey Road and the musicians, and it was just, it was a career highlight for me, especially the choir. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about Abbey Road because I know in the past you've had a chance to use, like, your neighbors because I know you have really talented neighbors who are symphony musicians and stuff. Uh, But this this was different. This was in, in London, in the city in which the game takes place. Exactly. And that was... A wonderful coincidence that wasn't the driving factor behind choosing Abbey Road. The bottom line really was the instrumentation, the number of violas that we wanted, and especially the low woodwinds, those contrabass clarinets that I mentioned, and we got the ones that had an extra low extension. There's only, I mean, you know, 10 of these in the world. So the fact that you can get three of them in a single studio is a pretty big deal. And there were a couple of times where I was I was hearing I was hearing, you know, like a Debussy kind of sound in some of those chords and colors and shifts, you know, and uh, I thought that was quite appropriate for 1886. Well, there you go. It was definitely a palate cleanser for me because, as as you know, Evolve just came out last week and the order is coming out this week. And. Probably three different times I had milestones, uh, which is another word for deadlines, that were the exact same day for both games. And I would work on the order in the morning. Like, I very specifically remember writing that cue for the knighthood. Came in at 9 a.m., wrote it from 9 to noon. Sent it to Sony. At noon, I started working on Evolve and did like a stealth batch of loops and stingers and things. Finished those at three. Got a text from Sony that said the music is approved. I sent it to my copyist. And by dinner time, I was looking at the score that I had written that morning of the piece of music. And then we printed out parts. And it was, I mean, just at, at, at the end, 
I worked on the game for almost three years, but really the rubber hit the road for about five weeks before each of the two recording sessions that we had. So it was kind of an hour's worth of music done in, in about four weeks, give or take, both times. But we were at Abbey Road for eight days between two different sessions, one in April and one in August. So it was just like, it literally was a dream come true for me. Thank you so much, Jason. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, it's always wonderful to talk with you, Emily. And thank you for listening. And thank you for the the positive vibes that totally makes my week. listening to Top Score from Infinite Guest. You can learn more about Jason Graves and see a full playlist from this episode at infiniteguest.org. I'm excited to welcome a new daily podcast to the Infinite Guest Network, TBTL, the show that just might be too beautiful to live. Luke Burbank is the host, and he's a frequent panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Every day, he and co-host Andrew Walsh talk about pop culture, the news, the inane details of their daily lives. It's oddly compelling. Give it a try at infiniteguest.org or search for TBTL on your favorite podcast app. Top Score's production assistants are Pierce Huxtable and Nina Potok. Top Score is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. Follow Top Score on Twitter and Facebook at Top Score Podcast. That's Top Score. I'm Emily Rees. Thank you.